All right, let's get into kind of the meat uh, today. Uh, there are certain things in life that go together really well. Um, combinations or, or pairs. If you think of one, you often sort of think of the other. Uh, some food ideas uh, came to mind. Uh, I'm personally a big fan of cookies and cream, and when those two come together, I am a very, very happy person. I've heard rumors of other people that like peanut butter and jelly. Uh, I am under the impression that peanut butter is a result of the fall, but if you like peanut butter, you do you. Uh, others, you man, I say the word bacon, you're like eggs, bacon and eggs, and, and so those things just pair together. And my goal this morning is not to make you hungry um, or to make you regret uh, that you didn't bring enough snacks. It's usually Pastor Eric's sermons are the ones that you need to make sure that you have enough food on hand to get to the end. Um, so I'm not trying to, to get your, your taste buds going too early, um, too late. <laughs> But those combos go together really well. And there's some others. I was thinking of pop culture uh, ones that go together. Uh, I thought of Batman and Robin. I thought of Han Solo and Chewbacca. I thought of Bert and Ernie. I thought of Mr. Roger and sweaters. You know, like there's just some things that, that you associate. And, and we could keep going on. We could, we could list these um, all morning. And this morning, we're going to find ourselves tackling another classic combo. Um, that's gone together for as long as I can remember. And so this morning, we're going to pair together the, the Mother's Day and Cain and Abel. You know, that just classic, that, that pair that when you think of one, you're like, Mother's Day, I bet he's going to preach Cain and Abel today. You thought it, but now it's real. Um, <laughs> we could do this as like a parenting, like how not to parent, um, or it ends up like this, sort of a what not to do. Uh, example, but if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, uh, we started a series for the summer with Jesus being the true and better, and you see that kind of up on the screen. And last week, we compared Adam, and, and this week, we're going to move on to Abel. So if you, if you heard the introductory video, there was the statement, Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. So that's kind of our jumping off point. Uh, we're going to look at the, at the life and the death of Abel and, and try to examine this connection between the left side of our Bible, the Old Testament, and, and see how it helps us better read the right side of our Bible and the New Testament. So if you have uh, your Bible with you, if you wanted to follow along, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 4 this morning, if you wanted to turn there. The context, if, if you're unfamiliar, is that Adam and Eve have just brought sin into the world, and now they're bringing children into a sin-tainted world. And parenting is complicated. It's an interesting mix of extreme excitement and extreme anxiety. Have you ever been around a, a new parent? They're asking themselves, am I doing it right? Are they supposed to smell like this, right? Am I, am I going to mess them up? And the answer is yes. Yes, you are. Sinners raising sinners, what could go wrong, right? It, it's amazing. It takes more training and certification to drive a car home than it does to drive a child home. Uh, so uh, parenting is, is complicated, but it's also fun and exciting. And we're going to see some firsts uh, for the first family today. We're going to see the first children as, as Cain is born and then Abel follows. We're going to see the first sacrifice, which is where we're really going to dial in uh, this morning. And unfortunately, we are going to see the first murder. Genesis chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. 
Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry, and his face was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, Genesis 4, we sort of get a snapshot of life after the fall, and Cain and then Abel are brought into the world. We learn what they begin to do with their time, what keeps them busy. In verse 2, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And uh, we're not given a, a lot of instruction. It, it, it makes you maybe ask the question, you know, were these tasks assigned by Adam? And Adam told her, you're going to do that and you're going to do that. Did, did Adam and Eve get together and have a career day and sort of show the benefits of, of each career opportunity? Or did Cain just get the short straw of being stuck in, in, in working the, the farm and, and Abel got to do sheep? Um, there's not a better or worse option here, and I think that's important to note, especially as we get to the sacrifice. I think these were both good options and, and fruitful and meaningful work that they found for themselves in a, in a post-Eden world. Their work is not a result of the curse. Um, we're told in the course of time that they decided to give an offering to God, which seems to imply that there was some way in which God communicated to them an offering of what was needed and, and, and what it was to be. We read that, that Abel's offering was pleasing to the Lord. We're, said, we're told he brought from his herd fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock, and the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. It was pleasing, and it was acceptable, and it, it seems to be in line with whatever it was that God had instructed them. And we're told that in Cain, that it, it was not met with acceptance. We're not told the exact reason. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. It couldn't have been that, that, that God only wanted fat lamb chops and, and Cain as a farmer was stuck bringing you know, broccoli and celery to, to the offering. That wouldn't have been fair. God couldn't hold them accountable for something that they couldn't have done. And even later on in the law, we see grain offerings and other types of sacrifice in addition to meat. So it wasn't just that meat was good and every other offering was bad. Now, if you show up to a Super Bowl party and you bring a veggie tray and somebody else brings wings, I mean, I might judge you differently in that situation, but that's not, that's not biblical. That's just me. Hebrews 11.4, it says this, describing all the way back here to, to Genesis, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. So what Cain brought was inferior 
Maybe it was in terms of quality or generosity or, or most likely of the attitude of his heart. And so we're told that God rejected it. God goes and has a, a very parental conversation with Cain in verse six. The Lord said to him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The God points out to him, you missed the mark of what I asked of you. Why are you so upset at me? And then there is this terrifyingly accurate picture of sin as God describes it. Sin is crouching at your door. Uh, we have a, a young dog at home and she likes to sit under the table during mealtimes. She has learned which side the children sit on in her wisdom. Uh, and, and she is waiting to pounce on anything that drops to the floor. And she has this strategy. It's called eat first and figure out if it was really food second. Like that's kind of her order of operations. But she is just ready and willing. What an amazingly accurate view of our sin nature, is it not? Who here can't say that they have felt that sin crouching, preying on our weaknesses and our sin nature, looking for an opportunity within our own hearts to strike? It desires to have you, God said, but you must rule over it. As I was thinking about Cain and Abel in the story this week, I, I was just amazed at the speed at which sin overwhelmed humanity. It didn't take a series of generations and, and a slow and subtle drift away from first sin. We quickly moved from unauthorized fruit access to cold-blooded murder. Do we treat sin with that right level of seriousness? Because we sometimes maintain a, a fairly cozy relationship with sin and, and presume to have a handle on it in our lives, but it is insidious and it is often crouching a lot closer than we want to admit, ready to pounce. So Cain's disappointment turns to anger and eventually turns into a desire to harm Cain. He acts out of rage and hatred, and the end result is the murder of his brother Abel. What was initially a sort of a parental warning from God, be careful, sin is crouching, is, is not how God comes back to him the second time. He comes in more of a judicial sense, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. See, even though Cain's actions were directly against Abel, we're, we're told that Abel's blood cries out to God. We tend to think of sin as something that we do against another person, another individual, but all sin really is sin against God. We're reminded of this from, from King David in, in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. Um, he writes this, "'For I know my transgression.'" My sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, there were other people that experienced the, the consequences of David's sin. Bathsheba would claim that David sinned against her, and Uriah, uh, who died as a result of David's sinful decisions, would certainly argue that there was sin against him as well. But as a righteous and holy God, all of our sin is ultimately 
against him. Abel's blood cries out from the ground and it cries out in agony to God for justice for how he was wronged by his brother Cain. Now, quick bullet point, if you're a note taker, here's your first one, murder is bad. There's a softball for you. Uh, but I think we can also learn about the, the, from Cain the speed and the depravity of his sin. And I think that that is to be a warning to all of us um, and we could focus there this morning more, but I, I want to turn our focus to, to Abel. It surprised me as I was just reexamining this story, how little we're actually told about Abel. Um, from the little bits we see and the little bits, we, he seemed to be a good guy. Uh, when, the, when the bar for comparison is your murderous older brother, you know, it's not hard to be the favorite child uh, in, in that situation. Uh, I consider the story of Cain and Abel a win for younger brothers like myself everywhere. The first, world's first older brother, kind of a jerk, you know? <laughs> but even if he was the better brother who brought the right sacrifice, it's important to note he was still a sinner that needed to offer a sacrifice. Now, we're never told the specific sin of Abel, um, but we know that he inherited from Adam the same sin nature that Cain inherited and acted out with murderous intent. Sin was not just crouching at Cain's door. It said in Hebrews, by faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. His, his righteousness that, that Abel has is not because he's the better brother, but because he had faith in the offering that he gave to the Lord. He still had to deal with his own sin nature, with his own sin. The sacrifice was still needed. We see at the very extreme left end of the Bible, on the very early pages, we're introduced to this concept of sacrifice. And it's intended to be instructional. It's a teaching tool. It's an object lesson. And one of the things that it teaches us is the serious nature of sin. It teaches that there are consequences for sin. It doesn't just drift away into nothing when it's forgotten, that, that sin requires a payment. Abel's blood in the ground cries out for justice. And with sin, things die in the process of making it right. But Abel dying, Abel's blood was not good enough to redeem himself because he was tainted by sin as well. So Abel, even as the better brother, wasn't righteous enough to deal with the consequence of his own sin. So he killed uh, a lamb and the, the best parts of the best of his flock, and he offered it up to die to cover his iniquities. Abel was good, we, we assume, but he wasn't good enough. And that's why the, the title of today's sermon is Abel, Good for Nothing. And I don't mean that in an insulting way at him, but, but his death has no lasting impact. He was still bitten by the curse of sin. He still needed something else to make him right with God in regards to his sin. And so a lamb paid the price, and Abel was credited with righteousness by God because of it. So we see it starts out with one sacrifice for one person. 
This is the building block of the sacrificial system. We don't know how much Cain and Abel were told. We, we don't know to what degree they fully understand everything that they were doing. But we get to look back with the full revelation of Scripture, and we can see how God progressively builds here from the left side of the Bible, and he introduces this to Cain and Abel. But for Abel, being good wasn't good enough. Being the better brother only makes his death that much more tragic. What did it accomplish? The answer is nothing. His sin still needed to be atoned for, and it still cost the life of a lamb. And my question for some is, how many people mistakenly consider good enough to be good enough in God's eyes? So we want to trace and do a little history work and and walk the progression out from the left side as we work our way to the right side in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to fly pretty quickly through the middle here. Each one of these could be its own sermon or likely its own sermon series. Um, So if there's more that that you want there, I apologize to to have to move by it quickly. But we're going to fast forward to to Exodus chapter 12 and the the birth of of a growing nation as it finds itself, Israel, under the impression of the powerful hand of Egypt. And If you're familiar with the story, Moses and Aaron are are used by God and are attempting to free the Israelites from the tyrannical grip of Pharaoh, but with no success. Multiple plagues occur and nine plagues wasn't enough. And so God uses the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn children of Egypt to push Pharaoh to finally give up. And in order for the Israelites to not fall victim to the same plague, the Israelite families were instructed to kill a lamb for their family and spread the blood on the doorframe of the house. Exodus 12, 13 says this, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The sacrifice of the lamb and the lamb's blood provided cover for them and allowed God to pass over his judgment on them. And it thus institutes what we call the Passover. So we see this progression from one sacrifice, one person to one sacrifice, one family. One Passover lamb for for the family. It was no longer one lamb for each individual person. They were dealt with collectively as a, as a family there. But our, our sacrificial, sacrificial system doesn't stop there. After they leave the desert and uh, leave Egypt, they're wandering in the desert and they were given the, the law and instructions of what they were to do and things that they were not to do. And if you are familiar with Israel, they got both of those wrong uh, often. And so in Leviticus 16, we see the institution of the Day of Atonement. This is the next step. And there were specific instructions that we see there in Leviticus 16 given to Aaron as the high priest of Israel and his duty to enter the most holy place after he had went through all of the proper steps to cover his own sin. He would go into the holy of holies where no one else could go and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the nation of Israel once a year. And the people couldn't do this for themselves. It was explicitly stated if anyone else went inappropriately or the wrong person or the wrong time, they would die for entering there. And so it was once a year, the high priest would go and make a sacrifice for the nation. There was this big uh, curtain. They were separated. The people could not enter. There was a block between a sinful nation and a righteous God. 
So the people depended on Aaron as their high priest and high priest down the line to atone for the sins in addition to their individual sacrifices and offerings. So you see how the system is progressing. One sacrifice, one nation. And it's getting more complex, but it's also, there's an effectiveness where it was one-to-one and now it's, it's one to a nation. So it covers more people from individual to family to nation, but now the steps are getting more complicated and, and there's, there's more to figure out. And it's a teaching tool as God is using it in the nation of Israel and as we get to see it from this side. Sin is not just a casual inconvenience. And the system for atoning for sin was growing increasingly burdensome. And it was not intended to be a forever solution. Hebrews 10, uh, looking at it from the New Testament side, says this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are to come, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshiper would have been cleansed once for all and no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in Abel, we started with the building blocks to get to the law, but the law is only a a shadow of good things that are to come, as it says there. But think back to, to what we, we, we talked about in Hebrews. By faith, Abel brought God a, a better offering than Cain did. And by faith, he was still commended as righteousness when God spoke well of his offering. We looked at this earlier and we're sort of highlighting the comparison of his offering being better. But now we want to make sure we understand that, that he still needed to make an offering. He still needed to demonstrate his faith and his obedience to God and do it how he instructed him. And so even as the better brother Abel still died for nothing, being a supposed good person from what we see about him still left him drowning in his own sin. And in his sin, he still needed to be covered by somebody else's righteousness. And that's what brings us to our our main thought today, that Jesus is the true and better Abel. See, Jesus is the true and better able because his sacrifice has the power to forgive sins. We see it through the New Testament uh, and, and, and it's all over the, the right side, um, but particularly in the, the back end of the book of Hebrews chapter nine and onward, uh, we see the, the final sacrificial level. One sacrifice, one world. Hebrews 9, uh, picking up in verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. It is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean, sort of pointing to the old system. Verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? 
And the author of Hebrews isn't demeaning the Old Testament system. He's not insulting the Old Testament sacrifices, but he is highlighting the incompleteness and the cumbersome nature of it and its repetition. The Old Testament system was instructive. It was a teaching tool, but it was not the end of the project. I think of it in English class and you, you had the process to go through with the paper and a proposal and a rough draft and a, and a second draft. And then finally you reach the conclusion that you hope that the paper is good enough by that point. The Old Testament sacrificial system was not an end unto itself. It was a stand-in. It was a placeholder. It was a roadmap that is supposed to walk us from the first pages of scripture on the left side to Jesus that we find as the completion of it on the right side the answer to what we've been looking for all along. I love that Jesus is described as the greater and more perfect tabernacle, just another way of saying the true and better sacrifice. Jesus ushers in a new covenant, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And we're told in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You can't have one without the other. But thankfully, it's not something that has to be repeated over and over again like it was in the left side of our Bible. There were a lot of animals that had to die to cover the sins of Israel year after year after year. And I'm thankful for the new covenant where it does not feel like it's stuck on repeat. Not for me having to, to, to keep uh, offering sacrifice and not for Jesus needing to keep offering himself as a sacrifice. In Romans, we're told that, that it is a, a, a decision. If we declare with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. See, new covenant is not like a Costco membership that you have to go back and renew every year, so you're allowed to keep coming back in. It is something we do once that stands for eternity. And Jesus does not have to keep getting sacrificed every year. He offered himself once and for all. Hebrews 10, 12, Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. He sat down at the right hand of God. So here's our takeaway uh, this morning. Here, here's, here's why this matters. Abel's blood solves nothing. Jesus' blood solves everything. Abel's blood cries out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out, it is finished. I was reading uh, John MacArthur and, and he was talking about this relationship of Cain and Abel and he said it well enough that I'm just gonna quote him this morning. Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God because it was offered in faith, but it has no atoning power, not even for Abel, much less for anyone else. Jesus' blood, however, was sufficient to cleanse the sins cleanse the sins of all men for all time and to make peace with God for whoever trusts in that blood sacrifice. Abel was a good man, but sin could not be conquered by a good man. Sin could only be conquered by the God man in Jesus Christ. See, we all need the perfect Messiah. He is the only one capable of undoing the curse of Adam and whose blood can actually pay the price needed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so because of that, I stand here saying, I am thankful for Jesus, the true and better Abel, whose sacrifice takes away the sins of the world for those who come to faith in him as their one and only Lord and Savior. 
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, your love for us. Thank you for Jesus and his demonstration of love, not just in thought, but in action and in deed, and for his perfection that was slain on the cross and his blood that was spilt, blood that's good for something. Lord, we are all stricken with the same condition that Abel had, and, and we are not good enough to fix ourselves. And so it is with a, a humble heart that we come before you and say, thank you for offering yourself for us. Thank you for covering my sin and my iniquities with your righteousness and your justification. Lord, thanks for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, help um, those that, that have not come to that conclusion, Lord, to ponder it and to think of their own sin and the realities of their own heart and the, the fruitlessness of trying to fix sin on our own. May they consider the true and better sacrifice that is Jesus as the one and only answer to sin. And Lord, for those of us that have taken that step and placed our trust in Jesus as our sacrifice, may we worship like there's no tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.